0: Good afternoon, Dr. Dan coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest of the USA. It's a beautiful day today. It is the 7th of April 2022. We've been talking about diabetes now for 26 lectures by my reckoning, so this will be number 27. I do promise we're going to finish this and I think this might be my last audio. There might be one more because I might need the time, but then I'll do that um, synoptic video like I like to do at the end of an arc of lectures on a specific topic. Now, last time, if you recall, we were talking about breast cancer and obesity. We talked about high body weight being associated with larger and more aggressive tumors. And we see this in animal models of breast cancer and also in humans. In fact, many of the research uh, studies that are performed looking at say transcription factors like NF-kappa B, STAT3 and the associated macrophages that are linked with pro-inflammatory responses in primary breast uh, tumors um, have a great deal of correlation between human studies when, when clinicians do biopsies and when animal models are used. So this is one of those times when, uh, when you get away from metabolic research um, or pathophysiological research, like say uh, cardiovascular disease, and you look at this simple, Um, progression of a cancer in a specific organ or tissue, there are much closer correlations between the animal models and the human. Now, I say that in terms of the etiology, the biochemical etiology of the disease, but that's kind of where it ends because many of the pharmaceuticals that are used as therapeutics that seem to work pretty well in breast cancer research, particularly comparing hormone associated versus uh, say triple negative, uh, double and triple negative breast cancers, which don't seem to be linked directly to the endocrine system. Um, Either one, the correlations between the animal models and the human uh, fall steadfastly. and. We can get into some of the reasons why that is, but um, I'll just leave you with the idea that the regulation of biochemical systems is highly adaptive to individual species and humans are no different than any other species. So a rodent model and a rodent physiology and therefore its molecular genetics um, and then the underlying biochemistry are definitely going to be unique. And when things do get corrupted, such as in massive cell division and oncogenic events during tumorogenesis, you can be sure that those biochemical and physiological um, adaptive systems to a specific species, declare and define that species. And that's why we have to use clinicians uh, research to be able to get at what's going on in human cancers. Um, and in fact, all other diseases when you get to the final stages of it. So that's all I really wanna say right now about the cancer work. Let's move on. <clears throat> Now, the insulin response substrates one and two we've discussed recently, and there's very important because they are critical nodes for insulin and for IGF, that's insulin growth factor one, signaling. Uh, And both IRS one and two have a lot of uh, protein structural and functional uh, relationships, but they're also very potent tissue specific differences. So where IRS one is crucial for normal growth and differentiation of say myofibers, insulin dependent glucose uptake and glycogen synthesis, IRS two in skeletal muscle is actually not participating in insulin associated glucose uptake. Okay, so that's a large difference even though the polypeptides have high sequence homology. So liver IRS-1 and IRS-2 are both important to mediate insulin-dependent regulation of glucose and lipid metabolism, not uptake, remember. So there is more of a similarity. I will also say that dysregulated muscular or hepatic abundance and or phosphorylation status of uh, uh, IRS-1 and 2 are very important features of the pathogenesis of insulin resistance we find in type 2 diabetes and in the correlative muscle uh, wasting. So when insulin binds to its receptor, it can trigger IRS 1 or 2, which uh, once that occurs, it's a phosphorylation cascade, um, IRS 1 and 2 will Promote the activity of phosphatylonostol 3 kinase, which will phosphorylate protein kinase B, which will promote the endosomal trafficking of GLUT4 from the interior of the cell endosomes to the surface plasma membrane. And therefore, glucose uptake is promoted. That's classical insulin dependent glucose uptake. Now, We were talking about how lipids, dyslipidemia, is the central pathobiochemical um, orchestration of type 2 diabetes. I had to think of a word there. I think I like the word orchestration for that. So So just think now about free fatty acids or non-sterified fatty acids. Non-sterified fatty acids will trigger protein kinase C- theta in the plasma membrane. And that, <laughs> when you activate PKC theta, you inhibit the IRS-1-2. When you inhibit IRS-1-2, you get no py 3 kinase, you get no PKB, and you get no GLUT4 translocation to the plasma membrane. So you basically block in, insulin activity, generating insulin Resistance from free fatty acids, but free fatty acids also directly inhibit the GLUT4 transporter. So free fatty acids have two potent negative effects on glucose uptake. One is the um, intermediary signaling between PKC and IRS and PI3 kinase and PKB, etc., and isomal trafficking of GLUT4. That was what the etc. was, and the other is the direct inhibition glucose uptake once GLUT4 is even in the membrane. Now that's in the muscle. Now in the liver, you have insulin binding to its receptor, triggering IRS 1 and 2. That also promotes phosphorylostol 3 kinase, which activates via phosphorylation protein kinase B. But here you're not talking about GLUT uh, transporter movement from the endosomes to the surface plasma membrane of the hepatocyte because you don't have insulin dependent glucose transport in the liver remember but you do get the insulin response which when it goes through that cascade tanks gluconeogenesis and increases glycolysis obviously because insulin is going to be synthesized secreted and in circulation because of high circulating glucose However, the free fatty acids will still block PKC theta in the liver and thus inhibit the downstream processing via PKB, protein kinase B. So you won't get the transcriptional control and activation of glycolysis and the deactivation of gluconeogenesis. So that is corrupted, you understand. So here's where insulin's functioning more in intermediary metabolism. But I'll also say that what glucose does come into the liver through the GLUT2, which is not trafficked to the surface membrane by insulin binding, as I just explained, but GLUT2 found there constitutively in the membrane, it too is inhibited by free fatty acid, not sterified fatty acid. So that leads me into another discussion, which um, I didn't really know I was gonna get into, was we're gonna talk now for the rest of this lecture on the involvement of kidney pathophysiology in type two diabetes. So when you get a lipid overload, of course what that means is excessive tricyglycerol deposition into the white adipose cells. And you know that that's going to impair Adipogenesis, because as we know, uh, when you have excess triacylglycerol deposition, it inhibits adipocyte differentiation from the pre-adipocyte to the mature. And what then results is adipocyte hypertrophy. We've been talking about this. And you know that's characterized by hyperlipolytic and pro-inflammatory phenotype, which itself generates a resistance to insulin. That is what insulin is doing in the uh, fat cell, of course, is also glucose uptake. Now the increased secretion of a protein called MCP1 is associated with hypertrophic adipocyte initiation and recruitment and proliferation of adipose tissue macrophages, those ATMs which will then release, once they're taken into the adipose, localized there, certain pro-inflammatory associated chemokines and cytokines, which will promote in the adipose, in the visceral fat, chronic inflammation. Now, besides that, you get the release of TNF-alpha and interferon gamma from those macrophages, type one. So T cells and natural killer cells come in to inhibit the differentiation of the pre thus further reducing insulin signaling in the mature adipocyte cellular lineage and in the visceral organ itself and the adipose. So what that means is the lipolytic pathway in hypertrophic adipocytes is further amplified and it's amplified by chronic inflammation and enhanced insulin resistance. What that means is an increase in non-esterified fatty acids and other lipid metabolites like ceramides and sphingosine, And that means a delivery from dysfunctional adipose tissue, which overwhelms the oxidation rate, which causes ectopic fat deposition in the cardiac muscle, but also in the liver, so you generate a fatty liver. And indeed that intermyocytic skeletal muscle buildup of triacylglycerol as in form of lipid droplets being sealed by that perilipin unit membrane protein containing unit membrane, okay? Which is basically not usable as a carbon source because it's not intramyocellar, it's inter. So it's between the myocytes and the muscle, skeletal muscle, you get that? And what that leads then to is Metabolic syndrome, okay? Uh, a a full blown metabolic disease. Uh, and you can see how the progression, the etiology of this, uh, functions at the level of dyslipidemia. So the increase in free fatty acid influx into the skeletal muscle, usually through, through something like the orphan receptor CD36, and it also happens at the skeletal muscle, but in the liver, will Um, correlate with higher intracellular diacylglycerol as well. Now, remember that story. High levels of DAG will activate PKC, and PKC-theta is no exception, so that's turned up, but also PKC-epsilon, and they will both functionally tank insulin signaling both in the liver and in the skeletal muscle, in the two modes I just explained to you how those function. So dyslipidemia basically involves this tremendous increase in not just free fatty acid, but in various other very bioactive lipids, such as diacylglycerol, you see? And all of those are coming up, increasing in molar concentration, in circulation, but also in the cellular systems themselves, and what will happen because of this is you'll completely lose insulin signaling, but you'll also get increases in triacylglycerol circulating and non fatty acid. It's all gonna be in the plasma now. So along with that, you're gonna have high circulating levels of ceramide, which is often recovered from type two diabetic patients. And we know what that does, that contributes to development of peripheral insulin resistance. And it also causes a great deal of programmed cell death because ceramide can act as a paracrine hormone by inducing PCD. Now, not just apoptosis, but also necrotosis, and there have been papers I've read where Extracellular ceramide binding and entering a cell can also generate ferritosis, which is even more lethal to the system right? because that's going to involve iron, some more superoxide, and then more hydrogen peroxide, and then more hydroxyl anion. And all that's going to, all that reactive oxygen is also going to be associated with reactive nitrogen. And you're into a full blown dyslipidemic uh, oxidative poisoning of the system. Further increasing the production of pro-inflammatory icosinoids, which will trigger pro-inflammatory cytokines, chemokines, growth factors, and matrix metalloproteases. You see now why type 2 diabetes, if you want to answer it in one word and you're in front of me and I'm giving you an exam, that one word would be: what what is what is the associated culmination of all the different pathologies, pathophysiology and pathobiochemistries, type two diabetes, all you have to say is dyslipidemia. Now, I may ask you to go to the chalkboard, or I guess the whiteboard, and show me how that works. And you would answer that question quite well too, but you have to listen to authentic biochemistry, right? And if you don't, well, um, good luck. Now, with an elevation of circulating sphingosine 1-phosphate in obese patients, particularly obese and type 2-diabetic uh, diagnosed patients, you get an association with central abdominal obesity and metabolic syndrome. So you have full-blown disease. So what that suggests is there's a relationship between the ceramide the sphingosine 1-phosphate ratio which we mentioned two or three lectures ago. And that's going to involve dyslipidemic alteration of metabolism intracellularly. It's also going to corrupt adipose as an endocrine uh, organ system. So you get adipose dyslipidemia, adipose dysfunction. And of course, that's going to result in type 2 diabetes. So that's why. People who are in the know about diabetes will tell you that it, that the classic pathology there is dyslipidemia. All right. Now, a little bit more about the insulin receptor in type 2 diabetes. Remember that the receptor is a tyrosine kinase. So it catalyzes auto tyrosine. Remember that tyrosine is a hydroxyl group, right? Benzene ring with a hydroxyl group. That's the R group for tyrosine. So you get phosphorylation of that OH group. And once that happens, once it autophosphorylates, then the uh, insulin receptor turns into a kinase and it phosphorylates the insulin receptor substrate, the IRS. Now that IRS acts then as the cytosolic adapter polypeptide. And that will, of course, generate a recruitment and activation of that phosph- another lipid-mediated kinase, phosphoinositide 3 kinase, PI3 kinase, and that will then elevate the production of very important signaling lipid known as PIP3, which is phosphatidylinositol 3,4,5-trisphosphate. That then activates phosphoinositide-dependent kinases, and these are called PDKs. And together with the mTORC2, okay, PDK along with mTORC2 will generate a phosphorylation cascade leading to protein kinase B, PKB, and AKT activation, specifically on certain amino acids, which can be phosphorylated, and I'll tell you what they are. For PKB it's 3 308 and for AKT, it's serine 473. The reason we know, we want to know this is because people are targeting this with pharmacotherapeutics. Uh, indeed they are. Now, the downstream effects of the AKT, phosphorylation cascade will modulate insulin induced metabolism. And of course that includes the glu- glucose transporter in cells that translocate gate glut 4, okay? But also, remember, it's going to involve lipid biosynthesis, working through the transcription factor, SREBP1C, remember that, right? From the ER to the Golgi to the nucleus, right? Acting as a transcription factor and finding those sterile response elements and then inducing chromatin um, retailering. Right? And what will generate then, because of trans- fresh transcription via this pathway, are gluconeogenic and lipogenic enzyme expression. And this will be triggered first by by causing the expression of FOXO, which is a master regulator of those two two pathways, lipogenesis and gluconeogenesis. Now, in addition to all that, the insulin-induced activation of the RAS MAP kinase, that's mitogen-activated protein kinase, MAP kinase pathway, via the same IRS will further regulate growth and differentiation. So in a pro-inflammatory state, when you include lipid signaling, you're going to get pro-inflammatory cytokines and dyslipidemia acting co-functionally and synergistically to promote insulin resistance. So non-acetylified fatty acids, when they increase, are gonna cause an increase in ceramide production and diacylglycerol because of the lipid pathways. That's going to promote PKC, and that's going to block directly insulin signaling. Non-sterified fatty acid increase will also work through toll-like receptor activation. It'll generate that endoplasmic reticulum stress response, Right. And of course, as I already mentioned, because of all the reactive oxygen being generated because of the corruption of the electron transport chain, you're going to get more and more ROS production. This is going to turn on the rest of the kinases, so-called stress kinases, and these are like G, uh, J and K one or junk app1, the IKK beta, the I kappa kappa beta, and the NF kappa beta and the JAK-STAT pathway. Those are all phosphorylation kinase cascades that turn on transcription factors, which induce pro-inflammatory cytokine production. See how it all came about because of free fatty acid. That is not a certified fatty acid because of obesity, right? So the, the other thing these stress kinases do, like the JAK-STAT pathway and the tumor necrosis factor interferon gamma pathway those are all stress kinase mediated. You also turn on the SOCS3 protein induction, which will further tank insulin signaling. So you got the Junk IKK, you've got the JAK-STAT, you got the TNF interferon, all working through either SOC3 or not, directly inhibiting insulin signaling. You also have the ceramides and DAG, Uh, promoting uh, protein kinase C activation, which kills insulin signaling. Pro-inflammatory cytokines will further block the activity of uh, peroxisoproliferative activator receptor gamma, which would normally remove non-esterified fatty acids, okay? We actually block their incorporation to the cell and their production from lipase activity. So multiple patho-biochemical responses, starting simply from circulating and then cellular free fatty acid. You see why I say that that is what lipotoxicity is uh, full on, right, lipotoxicity, when you get free fatty acid, I told you they also, free fatty acids also completely uncouple uh, membrane electrical conductivity, and therefore all the gated channels get uh, corrupted and transport in and out of the cell becomes corrupted. And when that happens, of course, they, the cell can't signal. The cell can't uh, induce a response appropriately with the immune system. And so whatever's going on in that cell, which is toxic, say it's a uh, tumor cell, is not going to be able to mediate via the signaling as the tumor cells started to generate. And the system, the homeostatic system, is seeking to find um pro-tumorogenic cells and stop them before they become proliferative, all that signaling is also going to go away. Now you see how cancer could, could occur, and you already know about the cardiovascular system because of the incorporation of this intramyocellar triacylglycerol, which then induces more reactive oxygen, reactive oxygen, pro-inflammatory eicosanoids, pro-inflammatory eicosanoids coming from the endothelium and the epithelium. Generating pro inflammatory cytokines, growth factors, and matrix metalloproteases, also and then causing cardiac hypertrophy, for example. Okay. So again, ER stress, reactive oxygen, all linked to this nonasterified fatty acid buildup. And all the pro inflammatory mediators are your usual suspects, TNF alpha, and if you're on gamma. And as it turns out, most of the research suggests that short-chain saturated fatty acids are functioning at a final thing I should mention, and that's the upregulation of the expression of particular, remember we called it the canonical dangerous pro-inflammatory cytokine, except with an X as a myokine from the muscle in healthy uh, contraction, and that, of course, is interleukin-6. We talked all about the interleukin-6 family four or five lectures ago. And and remember, I told you whenever you see IL six, you also see TNF alpha. Those are both pro And what do they do? Their first raison d'être is to inhibit PPAR gamma, and that that would be to inhibit lipogenesis and interfere with intracellular metabolism. And of course, that works both at the transcriptional, post-transcriptional, translational, and then post-translational activation in terms of, um, allosteric modification down there at the level of protein kinases and lipases even. Okay. And metabolic enzymes. Okay. So now you see the full blown insulin resistance in type two diabetes. Okay. Now let to check my time here. Yeah, we're almost done. That's good. I think we've covered a lot of ground today. Um, just to, just to remind you, because we're going to get back to the whole, you know, normal physiology and then go back to pathophysiology because that's what I do here when I tell you uh, the biochemical events that are occurring there. Remember that insulin is going to regulate multiple um, biochemical events. Glucose uptake, glycolysis, glycogen synthesis, all that can also occur in the adipose. And, you know, we're going to have to d- discuss then cyclic A and P. So that's adenylate cyclase. We have to talk about guanylate cyclase activity, and we're going to be right back into that, as well as the phosphodiesterases, which control the production of those cyclic nucleotides. Okay. And we're going to get into all of that um, uh, next lecture. So I'm just shutting down the lecture now so I can get back to the um, the page that shows my uh, podcast. And what I wanna say is I'm going to um, remind you that I'm gonna try to give you only one more lecture because I wanna include the discussion of kidney involvement, the very, very dangerous kidney diseases that are associated with type two diabetes and obesity linked. uh, Because many people who are obese particularly chronically obese for for many, many years, even decades, do have severe kidney issues, diseases, and kidney failure. So we have to include that in our final analysis of type 2 diabetes and the misery it causes uh, and the human disease, morbidity, and mortality in human So uh, with that rather reflective note, this is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Studios on the beautiful 7th of April 2022, saying bye for now.